You're listening to Vexed, a program on the Ephesus School Network. I'm Andrea Backus, your curator through biblical literature and its world and culture. Just as a museum curator selects, acquires, cares for, repairs objects, and discovers frauds and counterfeits, I'll be sifting through our world and culture for examples to help us better understand the biblical text. In our last episode, I spoke about a matter of church life, the readings of the Bible that we hear in church and their purpose. Today, I will examine another matter of church life, and that is our rituals. Rituals are an expression of culture. They are not limited to the realm of religion. We have American rituals. Fireworks displays on July 4th, for instance, are an American ritual. We have family rituals. Summer evening backyard barbecues could be described as a family ritual. And we also have work rituals. We might describe the way that we observe holidays from work, such as the 4th of July or Thanksgiving, as a kind of work ritual. A ritual is a type of behavior regularly followed or performed often. A ritual has within its definition the elements of action and repetition. It is something we do, a behavior, and something we repeat. But there is more to it. Certain rituals are more important than others. There are perfunctory rituals. We run to the market or to the dry cleaner on a regular basis. You might say that we do these things ritually, meaning routinely, but they are ordinary, run-of-the-mill, day-to-day activities. Religious rituals are different. They are extraordinary outside of the ordinary, set apart. They are things we do with special focus and attention. The word ritual comes from the Latin word ritus, which means custom, particularly a religious one. This word ritus holds within it its ancestral Proto-Indo-European root, ri, which has to do with counting. Have you noticed that when you are counting something, you shoo away distractions because you are concentrating? You tell the person who is trying to talk to you to hold on because you're counting. You are giving that activity your whole attention so that you don't make a mistake. The primitive root re, then, which is embedded in our word ritual, calls us to vigilance. Rituals, the kind we will be speaking about today are behaviors which we observe with care and attention. They matter, 
and they have a meaning and a purpose. In the realm of church life, it is my conviction that the purpose of our rituals is to turn our attention back to our source text and its instruction. For Jews and Christians, their source text is the Bible. When I say source text, I mean that the Bible is their foundational authoritative text, which governs over them. You might call the United States Constitution the source text for American citizens. It is their reference. They are governed by it. Let us examine a verbal ritual, which is common to many religious traditions. A verbal ritual is something we say, the words we use. Saying a prayer is an example of a verbal ritual. I'm referring to titles, clergy titles, those special names that they hold, and the way that we, the lay people, address them by these titles. Titles distinguish those who hold them, set them apart in some way. They are a sign of their position of leadership. We don't refer to our clergy as Bob or Mr. Smith. We call them Father Bob or Pastor Smith. We address our clergy by their titles as a sign of respect, certainly. But there is more to this practice than the paying of respect. When we address our clergy by their title, we are hearing the biblical story. Clergy titles are loaded with meaning. The title is a marvel, an ingenious instrument of language, a small word which conveys a big meaning. A title is an elegant abbreviation, a kind of verbal shorthand. In Islam, though not technically clergy, the leader's title is imam. In Arabic, this word means the one who stands in front of, ahead of, referring to his placement in front of the gathered during worship services. In Judaism, the leader's title is rabbi, which literally means my great one. This is connected to their role as teacher of Torah. It is the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, also referred to as the five books of Moses, which is great, not the individual. This is what this title is expressing. Let us consider two titles commonly used in Christian traditions. They are pastor and priest. We will examine what these titles mean, and in doing so, we will discover and uncover their roots in the biblical text. Let us begin with the title pastor. In some Christian traditions, the leader is referred to as pastor. The word pastor is from the Latin, which means to shepherd. It's from the verb pastus, which means to lead to pasture, to set to grazing, and thereby to cause to eat. It has the connotation of sustenance, to provide for, to give life to. It is from the Latin pastus that we have the word pasture. The title pastor, then, indicates that the person who holds this title does the work of a shepherd, as it is described in the biblical text. Shepherd culture is a major motif in the Bible. Not just any shepherd culture. It is specifically that which is practiced in the Syrian desert. 
The Syrian desert is a wilderness, rocky and dry. This is the shepherding landscape we hear about in the biblical text. We are not talking about shepherding in, for instance, England's Lake District, where there are green rolling hills and where sources of water are readily found. In the desert described in the Bible, the only source of life is the shepherd, who knows where the oases are and leads his sheep there. If a sheep in northern England wanders from the flock, there is a good chance that they will find grass and water somewhere nearby. Not so in the Syrian desert. In the Bible, God is the shepherd and his people are sheep. The shepherd gathers the individual sheep into a flock by the sound of his voice. He utters a particular sound, his call, and the sheep know him by that sound. They follow him and thereby are led to food and water. The shepherd walks ahead and leads the flock to the next oasis. An oasis is a fertile spot in a desert where there is a spring or well and some vegetation. Palmyra, which is located in the Syrian wilderness, northeast of Damascus, is an oasis. In the 1st and 2nd centuries AD, a Greco-Roman city was built there. The stone ruins of that city are still there today. I want to emphasize that it is the voice of the shepherd that makes life possible in the desert. The shepherd's call is a kind of Torah, instruction. The sheep hear the call and gather as a flock. It is as a flock that the sheep survive. Without the shepherd and his call to gather and lead them, the lone sheep is bound to be lost to predators or starvation. Sheep survive by obeying the shepherd's call. A sheep has only two choices, to obey or disobey. They are not voiceless, but they do not use their voice to express their wishes or to dialogue with the shepherd. They simply say ba. This model of shepherd culture is the way of life which God endorses in the Bible. As we hear in the prophetic books, God's city, that which is not made by the hand of man, is an anti-city. The open landscape of the desert, no walls or buildings, just the shepherd and his flock. The biblical text is replete with references to God and his anointed as shepherd and his people as his flock. It is a motif that runs through the entire corpus. Let us hear some texts from the Bible, which express this shepherd-flock metaphor. The shepherd-flock metaphor is found in many of the Psalms. Psalm 23 is perhaps among the best known. In verses 1 and 2, we hear, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. In Psalm 79, verse 13, we hear, But we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever. In Psalm 95, verse 7, we hear, For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, and the sheep of his hand. Oh, that today you would hearken to his voice. In Psalm 11, verse 3, we hear, Know that the Lord himself is God. 
It is He who has made us, and not we ourselves. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. We also find the shepherd flock metaphor heavily in the books of the latter prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. In Isaiah chapter 40, we hear that the Lord God will rule over his people and that he is the source of their life. In verse 11, we hear, He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. In Isaiah chapter 53, we hear about God's suffering servant, whom God appoints for his purposes. In this chapter, God is the shepherd, and both his people and his chosen servant are sheep. In Isaiah chapter 53, verses 6 and 7, we hear, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. The book of Jeremiah is a scathing critique of God's people. In chapter 23, verses 1 to 4, we hear, Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, says the Lord. Therefore, says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people, you have scattered my flock and have driven them away, and you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil doings, says the Lord. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will set shepherds over them, who will care for them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, nor shall any be missing, says the Lord. We hear the depth and breadth of the shepherd flock motif in the book of Ezekiel. To the ear, in certain chapters, it sounds a lot like Jeremiah. In Ezekiel chapter 34, we hear an even more savage critique of the leaders, those charged with caring for God's people. Because chapter 34 is so all-encompassing of all the elements of the shepherd metaphor, let us hear it. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophecy against the shepherds of Israel, prophecy and say to them, even to the shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Ho, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fatlings, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the crippled you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth, with none to search or seek for them. 
Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, says the Lord God, because my sheep have become a prey, and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts, since there was no shepherd, and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves, and have not fed my sheep, therefore you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand, and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths, that they may not be food for them. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when some of his sheep have been scattered abroad, so will I seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, by the fountains, and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture and upon the mountain heights of Israel shall be their pasture. There they shall lie down in good grazing land, and on fat pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I will make them lie down, says the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the crippled, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will watch over. I will feed them in justice. And then further in the chapter, we hear God address his flock, telling them that he will judge between sheep and sheep, rams and he goats. It's interesting how specific this text is. God has no patience for bullies. In verse 20 to 24, we hear, Therefore, thus says the Lord God to them, Behold, I I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep. Because you push with side and shoulder and thrust at all the weak with your horns till you have scattered them abroad, I will save my flock. They shall no longer be a prey, and I will judge between sheep and sheep. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. I don't think I've read a better description of a bully than what we've just heard from Ezekiel. There is so much more, so many more examples of the imagery of shepherd culture in the Bible. The biblical story is wild and alive with this imagery. We hear the shepherd flock metaphor used in the scroll of the Twelve Prophets, in Zechariah and Micah, and of course, we encounter it a great deal in the New Testament. We hear this metaphor in all four Gospel books. Its use in the Gospel of John chapter 10 is perhaps the most well-known. Jesus refers to himself as the Good Shepherd, and he is warning the people about false leaders, wolves in sheep's clothing. In John, Jesus is the true shepherd who cares for the sheep as his father has commanded him. How does he care for them? By teaching them scripture. 
God's instruction. I have gone into some detail in reading these occurrences in the biblical text in order to make it clear that this motif of shepherd culture is not just sprinkled in here and there in the text. It is fundamental, woven into the fabric of the story. So let us return to the clergy title pastor. If I were the leader who carried the title pastor, I would be a little alarmed after having heard Jeremiah and Ezekiel chapter 34. These passages from Jeremiah and Ezekiel are both scathing critique and cautionary tale. Much is expected of the pastor. As we just heard, their charge is to shepherd, to take care of God's flock the way it is described in the Bible. The threat of God's judgment looms, and when he or she reads Ezekiel chapter 34 aloud to their congregation, the pressure is on. Let us turn next to the second title we said we would discuss, and this is the title Father. In the Roman Catholic and Orthodox Christian traditions, we address our clergy as Father. Everyone has some familiarity with the word Father. A father is someone who begets a child. This word father is from the Old English root word fader or fodder. Pronunciations of this Old English word differ. Father also has the connotation of taking care of, not just begetting via procreation, but rearing that child. Our priest is our father in the sense that it is his charge to birth, to give life to God's teaching in us, his children. The priest is the father and the people are his children. As with the title pastor, the one who carries the title father is under pressure of this charge and also accountable. He who carries the title father occupies a place of authority, and that authority is not their own, but comes from our reference, our constitutional text, the Bible. The father is the senior, responsible for the junior, as I have explained in prior episodes. We have the model for this title father in the biblical text. The New Testament authors co-opted the paradigm of the Roman household, in which the father is the head of the family, the pater familias. He is provider and has absolute authority over the family. He sits at the head of the table and presides. In the New Testament, Paul and Jesus function as pater familias. They sit at table and provide. The food provided is God's instruction. Paul is father to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 15. In this verse, we hear, For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. In the gospel books Mark and Matthew, we hear about Jesus feeding the multitude, the so-called stories of the loaves and fishes. We also hear about Jesus at table with his disciples in the Last Supper narratives, which we find told in different ways in all four Gospels. So coming back to the title Father, when we address our priest as Father, we are conjuring the imagery of the Roman household. We are acknowledging that his charge is to teach us 
to impose God's instruction on us, his children. And yes, he imposes the instruction as a father would impose a curfew on his child. We have no say. Let us take a moment to offer a few more words of explanation about titles and their meaning. A title is a function, not an ontology. What is an ontology? Ontology is a branch of philosophy which is concerned with the nature of being and existence. An ontology has to do with the existence of things and their properties. But we cannot make sense of titles using this lens. A title expresses a doing, a behavior, not a state of being or existence. To be a pastor or a father is in the doing, is in the act of pastoring or fathering. It is not a state of existence which is fixed. A pastor is not a pastor when he or she is sitting on the couch watching football. Let's consider an example to help us understand what I mean by function, not ontology. The Queen of England is the father of her country. She is a woman, and so she is called queen and not king, but she functions as a king. She does the work of the king, even though she is not called that. She is the father of her country in that she is the head of the state, the boss. Her husband is called prince, not king, because he is subordinate to her. He is prince, not king, because it is she who holds the authority, and there is only one king. Now, when we think of Queen Elizabeth II, the mother of Prince Charles and the grandmother of Princes William and Harry, this distinction isn't that palpable, because today, the queen is largely a figurehead. But go back in time to the reign of her predecessor, Queen Elizabeth I. She sat on her throne from 1558 to 1603, nearly 50 years. At that time, kings ruled with absolute power. She was, in every way, the king, an absolute monarch unlike her descendant, Elizabeth II, who rules as a constitutional monarch, not an absolute one. Queen Elizabeth I, the last Tudor monarch, never married. But if she had, her husband would also have been called prince. Can you see how a title expresses a function, not a person? It is not about gender, about who is male or female. It has nothing to do with the state of being. It is not an identity the way we speak about identity today. A title tells us about the work that the title holder performs. This is not so foreign to us. We hear this distinction in everyday life. When we address our physician as doctor or our airplane pilot as captain, we are acknowledging their function. Suppose you are a literature student. You might refer to your teacher of Shakespeare as your father in Shakespeare. It is not that that person is your biological father. Your teacher may not be an actual father, meaning that he may not have any children. But that is irrelevant. 
What you mean when you refer to your teacher as your father in Shakespeare is that that person has taught you Shakespeare. When you say that someone is the father of something, you mean that they are the inventor or creator of that something. Henry Ford can be said to be the father of American automobiles. Thomas Edison is the father of the electric light bulb. They are the originator, the progenitor. Function is embedded in the figures of speech we use every day. Let us now recap all that we have said. Today, we spoke about titles, clergy titles, and the way we address our clergy by these special names. We called this practice a verbal ritual. We explored the title pastor, which expresses the imagery of shepherd and flock. We then explored the title father, and we learned that this title conveys the imagery of the Roman household. I shared that our titles are rooted in the biblical text. They are not accidental or chosen by vote because we all decided that they sound nice. No, these titles are imposed on those who hold them. Their content and authority come from the biblical text. We explained that titles express a function, not a state of being. This is perhaps the most important takeaway of today's episode. The bearer of the title is not inherently special. Their being, what kind of person they are, is immaterial. They are not given the title because they are a man or a woman or because they are smart or nice or well-dressed. It doesn't matter who they are. Their title expresses the work they must do. In our case, the work of both pastor and father is to teach, to study, to learn the biblical text, and to teach it to those in their charge. My hope is that the next time you greet your pastor, you will be reminded to hear the book of Ezekiel. And when you greet your priest, you will be reminded to hear Paul's words in 1 Corinthians. Until next time. This is Vexed. Vexed is a production of the Ephesus School Network.